What's going on, all you bison peeps, you former Lipscomb grads and alums? How's your week going? Hope everybody is just lovely. Thanks for tuning in to the unofficial Lipscomb Alumni Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Glass, broadcasting from The Mothership. And it's just my pleasure to be your host as we talk to all these great Lipscomb alums. Well, I want to remind you to go ahead and grab your tickets for that special event we're having on November 13th here in Nashville from 7 p.m. to midnight. It is the, whatever you want to call it, unofficial alumni homecoming after party, the unofficial party, the unofficial alums drinking at a party together party, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, We're doing that and it's going to be a great time and I don't want you to miss it. And uh, let me remind you, just like with the podcast, which is unofficial, this party is also unofficial. It is in no way sponsored or endorsed or affiliated with Lipscomb. Just wanted to remind you about that. But uh, folks, you need to be there. And at the time I'm dropping these episodes right here, we'll be so close, like within a couple weeks maybe of this party happening. And so I don't want you to miss it. I'll tell you how you can get tickets here shortly. But real quick, a shout out and big thank you to our title sponsor, David Binkley Real Estate, for helping this thing all come to fruition. All right, as far as getting your tickets, hey, we only have 200 tickets to sell, so go ahead and grab them. They are going fast. We don't have a ton left. And don't rely on getting there that night and thinking that you can just get right in uh, because we do have some capacity restrictions that we have to follow, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that here in a second. But to get your tickets, go over to my Instagram profile in my bio. There is a link to Eventbrite, and uh, it'll take you straight to the event page where you can purchase your tickets there, or you can text LU Alumni to 615-283-9696 to get the link right there in your text messages. Again, if you want to do that, just text LU Alumni to 615-283-9696. And why should you be there? Well, it's going to be open bar and it's at a brewery, you know, Harding House Brewing Company. So there's going to be all the beer you can drink. Plus, we're bringing in wine and liquor for you. And we'll have one of those certified ABC bartenders there that'll be slinging drinks and making you whatever you like. Uh, Also, there's going to be food. So some of our fine establishments owned by alums will be catering food. We've got party fowl, and we've also got calamatas. We've got live music. Uh, We've got a set from Paul Sykes, uh, LU alum in the singer-songwriter space here in Nashville. We've also got DJ sets from alums like Jackson Smith and David Bermudez. But think about this. It's all just for $20. You get all that. And not to mention, you get to be around all your fellow alums and classmates and friends from Lipscomb, all for $20. I don't know an event where you can get all these things for $20. But hey, it's a great deal, and we really want this thing to go off. We want to blow it out. So go ahead and grab your tickets. And I mentioned we only have 200 tickets. One reason of that is the capacity size of the venue. So we're going to be pretty filled to the brim with 200 people as is. And not to mention, folks, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we're just trying to put all the cautions in place that we can. My guest today is LU Baseball Sensation. Do you want to throw 95? He's a rock star. He's out there touring. He's got the hair. He's got the guitar chops. He's got the voice. It's Jordan Barron. Or for some of us, it's just J-Bone. I met Jordan my freshman year, and while I knew him pretty well, it was uh, sophomore and junior year that I got to know him so much better. 
my sophomore year after I decided to move back into the dorm because I was illegally living off campus with some upperclassmen tall Phi guys for the majority of the first semester, I moved back to the eighth floor of high rise where my bed was literally touching the ceiling. We had two rooms, a bedroom with four beds. It was myself, Jordan Barron, uh, Landon Reeves, and Clay McLean. And the other room was our living room. And Jordan's amazing lime green leather recliner, which was his grandmother's, it was an essential piece of the room. It really tied it all together. And uh, we'll definitely talk about it. After that year, we moved out to Tyne Boulevard, which is a whole nother story. The Tyne Mansion was really just an old ranch home. It still stands there today, five bedrooms. This time around, it's myself, Jordan, Travis Littleton, Clay McLean again, and Hunter Batson. And it was a part-time party house, part-time pledging house, and uh, maybe part-time study house, not really sure. Uh, some of those guys studied a lot, honestly, because they went on to like med school and PT school. But uh, me, myself, you know, a little bit of studying here and there. And uh, parties were had by all, whether it was baseball team or social clubs, etc. It was there at the Tyne House where I also learned how to play Guitar Hero. And Jordan was very, very good at that game. Jordan's got a big personality and that really comes through in his music. He's just a very talented guy. And we'll get into his music career in part two. We'll listen to some of his original tunes. He goes by the artist name Harrison B. Uh, so definitely go check that out wherever you stream music. Harrison and then space the letter B. In part one, we will talk a little bit about music, uh, specifically how COVID has so drastically changed a musician's life. We'll also talk about Netflix during the early days of the pandemic. And don't lie, you probably did watch some Tiger King. We'll talk about growing up in Las Casas, Tennessee, which is right outside of Murfreesboro. Uh, Jordan's dad worked for Opryland, so his childhood was filled with many a roller coaster ride. He attended Middle Tennessee Christian School, where he was a standout athlete in both basketball and baseball. His basketball team included several guys that ended up coming to Lipscomb, including Aaron Mankin, Harry Chang, and Mike Miller. We'll talk about facing off on the pitching mound against MLB All-Star, Cy Young Award winner and World Series champion David Price, former Vanderbilt pitcher. And though he was recruited by schools like UT and Vandy, Jordan ultimately chose Lipscomb and was surrounded with a cast of characters on the team. We'll talk about those guys and the band that was formed, Cold Steel, that included Caleb Joseph, Trent Bailey, and Jerry Young. And then we'll start the transition into Jordan's big move out to the wilderness and the Alaska frontier, which is where he spent a great majority of his time since graduation uh, over the last decade. But uh, let's jump into some music. First up, uh, I've got a tune from 1979 called Glide by the funk band Pleasure. And I talk about a song with some awesome bass work. Uh, Glide hit number 55 on the Billboard Top 100 back in the day. A uh, short-lived band didn't last long, you know, called it quits in 1982, but uh, Glide is just a really awesome song. And then on the back end, a nice vibey jam from Lenny Kravitz. Uh, it's from his 1991 album, Mama Said, and the tune is called It Ain't Over Till It's Over. Well, it's time for the official statement about the unofficial Lipscomb Alumni podcast, so let me read that to you real quick. I am not an elected representative of Lipscomb University. I'm not an employee of Lipscomb University. I'm in no way sponsored or endorsed by Lipscomb University. This podcast has no affiliation with the school, the administration, the faculty, staff, students, etc. 
My only affiliation is that I'm an alum of the school. I do not receive any funding or compensation from Lipscomb University, its donors, or any other entity. This podcast represents the opinions and views of myself, Andrew Glass, and my guests on the show. The content here is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and my guests and do not reflect or represent that of Lipscomb University in any way. Okay, well, let's go ahead and jump on into the interview. First up, with some bumper music, we have Pleasure, the band, with the song Glide. And we'll get into my part one conversation with J-Bone, or as you know him, Mr. Jordan Day. weird right you know you kind of go from playing shows like at the end of 2019 you know we had a nice little residency run and uh was feeling good about kind of moving into 2020 Uh and uh then a tornado happened here and then covid happened so it was kind of just like well i guess i'll just you know put music out and not not worry about playing shows Mm -hmm. which maybe what you did too i don't know it's kind of soul sucking to stare at it too, isn't it? Like, you know, I don't. That's a. We can talk about it, but yeah, I mean, I think if you played or if you had any kind of activity, and it sounds like you definitely had some momentum going, man. Um, when you put everything into it, like you do to to have it just kind of not exist all of a sudden, it's just a it's a bigger mental shift than I think people gave it credit for. Yeah, and you know. I'll talk about this too. And I've talked to some other, uh, I talked to Nate Hale about this. He was over at my house and interviewed him. And, uh, you know, the part of playing a show that I don't miss is the like 95% of it. That is the not actually getting on stage and singing. It's like <laughs> sure. the Facebook ads and the posters you print and the merch table set up and like all that crap. Like, you know, you, you kind of have like a equal, you know, maybe maybe your band like takes part in that stuff. With me, like L- Landon just shows up to the to the show. Like he doesn't do anything else, right? So I, it's really all on me to do everything. Right. So I don't miss that. No, no, hell no. I definitely rocked the same vibe. I I do not miss the the band dad part of the deal um, that comes with touring, but. I'm stepping out this summer. I got three weeks here in June and then another run um, in looks like beginning of August. So just now trying to even start turning the gears or whatever about, 
you know, thinking like that and going through all those things. And it, it's a little unnerving, to be honest with you, to kind of reopen, um, I don't know, that chapter, I guess. So what, you say. said you got to run in June? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to Alaska for two weeks, and then I'm headlining a festival in Northern California in June, and then back to Alaska again um, at the beginning of August. Um, yeah, so that would be the first time, you know, I've gone out and played shows since really 2019. Um, I was on the road when COVID came to Seattle. I was finishing up a residency in Telluride, Colorado, and so... I really haven't done much except a couple of virtual shows since. So it's, it's coming up on, you know, year two. So it's crazy. When you were doing that, um, that gig and tell you ride, like with the residency, was it kind of like you started it and then midway through they were like, Hey, we're actually shutting down. You know, I actually know that the timing of it was that I, I finished that gig and I make a joke about it because I was there for two weeks on the last day on my last snowboard run, I actually fell and got a concussion um, and so like, I was like puking and dizzy, played that final set, um, knew I was flying out the next morning, I flew to LA to see my sister and, um, was actually super sick, had to go to the hospital, like vertigo stuff, whatever. And then, uh, while I was in there on the TV, they were talking about COVID and they were talking about how Seattle, um, was kind of the new hub and that LA was going to be next. And I'm flying from LA to Seattle at this time. This is the first I've heard of any of this, any of this disease, that sort of thing. I was just, yeah. you know, mortified coming out of a, con- I was like, I've got to, like, I messed my brain up. You know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't real just for a moment, obviously. I'm just kind of being facetious, but it kind of felt that way. Like I went down and I came up in a whole different planet, man. Yeah. You were, you were like flying right into the storm. You're like, Oh, I'm just going to go straight into the epicenter of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like I got, you know, like I said, the, the term was new. Everything about it was new. And I just knew I had to get, you know, home because I can't not live at my place. Um, that's why, you you know, you rent or whatever. So I just yeah. figured I'd get here and figure it out from there. And that's exactly what happened. I remember, um, you know, that first week where everything's just shut down. You're like, uh, just, you know, t- like Tiger King was on Netflix, I think. So I was like binging that. And then th- there was another thing like, I don't know why the timing of this, if Netflix was like, oh, this would be a great time to like re-release this movie. But that that movie like Contagion or something or whatever that yep. movie is where it's like <laughs> an epidemic and uh, <laughs> it was like top 10 for like two weeks or something like on Netflix. Like people, I think people like to 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 like uh, see like the reality of of like, okay, worst case scenario. Like, what could my life look like in a month? And am I going to be wearing like a yellow <laughs> bio suit all around? Sure. Yeah, I think it, it it was contagion exactly, honestly. I think you're nailing that. And then I think 28 Days Later was popping up too because that was a zombie movie, but a similar um, premise of a pandemic. And, you know, at that point, I don't think people realized how serious it was going to be, how long it was going to take, you know. So there was... I, don't, I hate to use the word novelty. That's definitely not correct, but some type of um, you know interest in uh, something people hadn't experienced. It was it was new. It was you know something that had to be figured out, and it was definitely on people's brains. So it makes sense to me that those movies kind of came in, came back. If if that was the worst case scenario for a lot of people, I can tell you, Tiger King would be like a worst case scenario oh. for me. Like living that guy's <laughs> life would be. 
Dude, his music videos, like some production value in those videos, though, but man, it makes me look at what you and me have done. And I'm like, man, we've just done such a great job that (laughs) we didn't do something (laughs) like that. Uh, I mean, yeah. First time you heard his voice, did you think it was him? Let me just ask you that. I had a feeling from the first. I was like, there's no way I've heard him talk. Yeah, I can't remember, to be honest, but what is the is the rumor or the facts that he hired somebody else to sing oh it's absolute facts that dudes wrote the songs and then performed them and he's just lip syncing in those videos wow That's, yeah and he probably paid an arm and leg for for the writing and all that maybe maybe not maybe got it done on a nice budget i don't know you know, I think he probably promised a nice bunch of He's the Tiger King. Who knows if he came through? <laughs> you know? Well, dude, let's uh let's jump in. Um it's it's awesome to have you on the show. Um you're probably up in the I've done about twenty interviews now, so um you're Dang, good for you. yeah, it's 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 cool. I'm enjoying it. Um, but I usually just start off with kind of like the where you're from, where'd you grow up and why'd you grow up there? I think uh isn't your dad's name Big Joe? That's right. Yeah, Joe Barron. Yeah, sure enough. So, so what? What was Joe doing in in the town you lived in? Why'd you grow up there? Yeah, so I grew up in Las Casas, Tennessee, um, um, which is just outside of Murfreesboro. If you're unfamiliar or not from Middle Tennessee, the obelisk that marks the you know dead center of the state of Tennessee is probably five to 10 minutes from the house that I grew up. Um, we were out there because he had a, a pretty clear shot to work. He worked in Nashville. He actually worked for Gaylord Opryland. So the Opryland Hotel, Opryland at the time, obviously the theme park, and then Fiesta, Texas down in San Antonio. And uh, he had a good little back route there. He could get in and out, you know, to Interstate 40 from where we lived in less than an hour, which was, you know, it made sense for him and he didn't want to live in Nashville. So he, Parked us out there, and uh, yeah, that's how I kind of came to be and grew up in Middle Tennessee there. Nice. And did your mom work? Yeah, my mom was a preschool teacher um, and then kindergarten basically my whole life. But she's been in early childhood development, um, shoot, for as long as I can remember. And I wasn't in her class, but she was still teaching even when I was a kid. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, um, did you go to Opryland a lot when you were a kid? Like, did you all have free pass to just kind of do that yeah. all summer? You know, it, uh, somewhere in between, um, I was in the, do you remember Hee Haw class by chance? Um, Hee Haw, well, I guess you didn't grow up in Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> like that was a, that was like a, on the grand old Opry style channel, that sort of thing. Hee Haw was like a comedy show okay. um, that they would play. It was similar programming. They also had kind of a brand and they had some printing and some videos and that sort of thing. And uh, I got looped into that when I was pretty young and um, I'd be in videos like, you know, eating chicken tenders at the park or going on a <laughs> roller coaster ride, um, you know, wearing Opryland gear or whatever. And it was always super cool. And um, yeah, I, I don't think we went regularly. He was pretty busy and and we didn't go, but we'd go, you know, once a season, I'd say we'd make it down there, and it was always a good time, man. I mean, it's a theme park. Come on. Yeah, it's kind of, it's like got a dot for people that didn't ever experience it. It's kind of like a Dollywood kind of vibe, right? Yeah. 
It, it had a little bit more beef to the roller coaster portion, I'd say. Um, there were some good rides in Opryland. What was your favorite ride? Shoot. I can't remember the names of them at this point. I always I liked the steel ones. Um, they had some wooden roller coasters as well. I don't know how you feel about those, but the thrill there um, just feels a little different. It's almost like, is this going to, you know, the thrill is, is this wooden structure going to fall apart with me on it? Right. And I, I more enjoyed right kind of the thrill of you know this is a tight metal structure and we're just doing a bunch of loops so i was all about them big fast ones i went one time when i was a kid because my you know my aunt lives here and so i came and stayed with my aunt for a week and uh i'm pretty sure i remember one of them the rides was called the wabash cannonball wabash cannonball yeah and uh, (laughs) i hated roller coasters I, i was like kicking and screaming getting on that thing dang yeah, but you know that's a heck of a name to recite all these years later. So I'm I'm proud of you, dude. I mean, the Wabash still, Cannonball, you did it. Still got the memory. Um, <laughs> so yeah, what were you getting into as a kid? I mean, obviously, you know, you were probably getting into baseball at a pretty young age. But um, you know, what other things were you? You know, turtles, Superman, you know, GI <laughs> Joe. Like, what what was your what was your gig? Big Ninja Turtle guy. Um. Love the Ninja Turtles for sure. And outside of that, you know, um, just being outside, man. I was I was definitely an outdoor kid. Anything with a ball. Baseball, you know, gradually came more and more of a focus as I kind of grew older. But, you know, young years, dude, if you, if you were looking for me, I was probably outside either on my bike or chasing some ball through either kicking it, hitting it, whatever. I didn't care. I just really liked being outside, so... That was me growing up, you know, enough of in the country that I could do that, you know, walk down to the river. Those sorts of things were always on the table as well. So y'all, y'all lived on a little bit of land. We had a little bit of land, um, but more importantly, we were just surrounded by farms um, more so than anything. Mm-hmm. So it's, I did not myself grow up on a farm or any type of working, um, working compound or whatever you want to call it there, but totally surrounded by, you know, Tons of crops, tons of space, and um, the Stones River actually winds through. Gets a little skinny by the time you get out towards Las Casas, but you could always go down in the summer and just take a dip and hang out. Um, that was definitely a thing. One of my favorite memories from growing up. Did you guys um, grow up, or did you grow up in Church of Christ? Was that like a thing? Y'all went out to Church of Christ there in Las Casas or anything? Yeah, it was It was mainly there in Murfreesboro um, at Kingwood Heights Church of Christ, but yeah, grew up Church of Christ. Um, mother and father were there, um, and my mom's parents as well, for as long as I can remember. Gotcha. Were you pretty involved with like youth group stuff or all that, all that jazz? Yeah, um, from pretty early on, I was definitely into the singing and and leading the singing, and that kind of became my thing. Uh, probably right around eight or nine, you know, I started kind of being a part of that um, for the congregation and, and just kind of fell into that role. Uh, more so for the youth. Um, oh, yeah. okay. And then that, you know, obviously as we got into youth group there, but for sure would get up and lead um, singing with the congregation, you know, once a month or something, or maybe a little bit less than that, but on the regular on a Sunday night, on a Wednesday, those sorts of things. Um, yeah. And I always enjoyed, you know, I don't think back to it too much, but when I do, I remembered kind of like, you know, choosing a set list, I guess you might, you might <laughs> say of like picking what songs yeah. you're going to lead at church and making sure yeah. that there was a flow of 
you know, some of the happy, upbeat ones and some of the more contemplative. And I don't know, even then I can remember enjoying trying to like lay that out. Yeah. You know, get all praises be in there and a couple others. Yeah. That's it. Um, so was that, was church and leading singing there, was that kind of your introduction to being on stage and kind of being in front of people and, and singing or were you doing, were you singing around the house or something? Like what, what got you into singing? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, when people ask, if I get asked about, you know, where I came into music, I always answer with a couple of things. The first of which was that my granddad, he uh, he's only owned one guitar his whole life, and he bought it out of a Sears catalog when he was 14 or 15, taught himself how to play, had the same guitar when he was on the boats in the Navy and that sort of thing. So all growing up, if I'd go to his house, he'd be playing a lot of old bluegrass and folk songs with a little bit of blues mixed into it. And I just loved listening to him. That was the first kind of introduction I got to um, guitar music, I guess. Um, I also went to bed every night. It was just my thing. I listened to classical. I listened to the classical station um, on like either volume one or two, as quiet as I could get it. And I just like to lay there and try to guess the next movement. If it was going to be minor or major, that was just always kind of a little quirk of mine. And then when I started into the leading of the singing, um, by that point, I think those first two things had already instilled in me kind of that urge to um, be on stage or to sing. Uh, I knew I, it kind of made sense to me, the, you know, the harmonies and the melodies when you grow up in acapella music, um, that's definitely more prevalent than uh, you come across organically. Um, so I, I think I just kind of gravitated to that. I always enjoyed kind of the lushness of that, um, you know, when you get the four-part harmony going. And to this day, I still think it's just it's a beautiful form of music. So did your grandpa give you that guitar eventually? He still got it. Um, oh, he still he got still, it. Wow. Still holding on to it. With, he's still with us. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's told me multiple times it's mine whenever I want it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have it with him for as long as it can be. And I still enjoy to this day, you know, if I get a chance to visit, stopping in and, and just trying to pick a tune with him. Um, probably gonna be Shady Grove or Wildwood Flower, you know, an old standard that he likes to go to the sinking of the Edmonds Fitzgerald. <laughs> that one's on standby as well. So, you know, That's always, awesome. I still enjoy it. Yeah. So but it's got a baseball so, bat for a neck glass. I'm going to tell you, I mean, you gotta, you gotta stretch the hand out and get it nice and loose before you can squeeze a cord on that thing. Cause you had to be a man to squeeze that guitar back. In the <laughs> yeah. That's the truth. Come a long way in guitar <laughs> manufacturing. Yeah. Really easy these days by comparison, I got to say so. Dude, where I work now, um, in Cummins Station here in Nashville, Gibson just moved in there, and yeah. uh, it's like every day somebody's bringing in like a guitar, like, and I don't know where, like, you know that if you're one of their big artists, like, you're you can send your guitar into them, and like they will do whatever they need to do. So like, I'll be in the elevator with somebody who's got like you know five guitar cases with them or something, and I'm just like wonder if these are like Dave Grohl's or like, you know, I'm just like wondering like, you know, what, what kind of personality is on the other side of that case and the inside of that case, what are they mm -hmm. played? So. Yeah. But you're in the city, dude, that that's totally a plausible, you know, question. Uh, yeah. And it very, it very well might have a very, very real answer. Um, yeah. More often than not. So I think that's yeah. awesome, dude. Um. So 
getting into high school, I know you went to Middle Tennessee Christian School out in the borough. And uh, so were, were you going there? Like, is it, is that a only, is that like a K through 12? Did you, were you there the whole time or what was the deal? I wasn't there the whole time, but from, uh, from elementary on for sure. Okay. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was good experience. Still got some good friends I'll stay in touch with um, from that. And yeah, so I don't, I don't know what you really want to know about high school. It obviously yeah, gets I deeper, didn't. but yeah. yeah, I want to know. So first of all, Middle Tennessee Christian, uh, would you put that like in the same vein as like a Nashville Christian school or like a Lipscomb Academy? Like what what was kind of the, what, where would you kind of put it in the tier system of the, the Christian schools in the area? Sure. It, it was an interesting sp- uh, in a lot of ways, because I guess the only way that I can think of comparing them is like athletically and particularly with basketball, you know, you drive around and you walk into their gyms and you kind of get to see some of the facilities or whatever. Um, and so we would play a Nashville Christian. We would play a, uh, like a lighthouse Baptist, but we would also, we were in the same division with like BGA, Father Ryan, uh, Brentwood Academy. Oh, okay. um, and so we, we got some pretty diverse experiences in terms of kind of like how it sat, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. and kind of where we sat. It's hard to put a definitive on that. Where would you, were you guys middle of the pack or were you up, you know, around the top or did you feel like you were kind of on the lower tier of that conference? Talk about sports wise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, In which in basketball. Yeah. So in, in basketball, that was honestly, basketball was probably the most formative experience um, for me at MTCS. I want to, I, I just, I fell in love with basketball probably around the age of 10 and I just kind of became obsessed with it. Um, Pete Mickey, who I know is a friend of yours, me and him, we'd, we'd be at the Murfreesboro spot called Sportscom, you know, four to six hours a night, as many nights a week as I could get over there and just shoot. I just love to shoot. And so yeah. by the time I was in seventh grade, yeah. I mean, I was a bigger kid. I was already pushing 5'10 and decently coordinated. And so I ended up uh, setting the school record for points um, as an eighth grader and winning a state championship um, as an eighth grader w- wow. with MTCS. And then and we had a coach named Jim Martin who he showed up. And I wasn't super excited about basketball or you know sports specifically, if I'm honest, until he showed up. And he had come from Texas and he had coached some really big high schools and some serious ball. And so he had that attitude. He was chucking chairs at junior high games and getting tossed out. And <laughs> he ended up, when I got fifth grade and went to high school, he took over the high school job because we had just won state. You know, that was his aim. And he really, you know, taught me a lot about the work involved um, that translated into baseball. Um, but I, I didn't even realize, you know, how hard you really had to push it to be any good. So, uh, basketball wise, we ended up overachieving quite a bit, competing and sometimes beating a BGA, a Father Ryan, a Brentwood Academy, even though they had, you know, guys that were going to go to UNC, they were going to get drafted, um, mm-hmm. really big players. And we were all about, you know, not to take it too close to home for you, but a, a Hoosier style game of ball where we had a tight plan. It was all about movement fundamentals and really executing. Mm-hmm. And so running point guard for, for those teams had, you know, three, 20 plus win seasons, which was big, set the school um, record for wins in high school as well, and got to be 
the captain and point guard on that team and, you know, playing some of these gyms that were tiny, but you'd pack, you know, four or 500 people into them. Um, and then you go to a BGA and you play a world-class facility and kind of the dichotomy of bouncing between those two things was just a, it was really a full experience, man. I loved it. Wait a second. So you were pushing six foot playing point guard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're like a magic Johnson out there. I play. I mean, that's not, not, you know, at, at the next levels. And as I, as I started taking sports more seriously and, you know, you, you had to decide what are you good enough to do at the next level? I, I knew pretty quick that basketball wasn't it for me. Um, I just didn't have that build. I didn't have mm-hmm. that spring, but I was pretty smart and I took care of the basketball. I could obviously scoot and sh- or shoot and score. And I just, I enjoyed it glass. I enjoyed the chess aspects of the game. Yep. Obviously kind of the heated moments and the pressure. I just, uh, I, it was at our school, the most heated thing you could be involved in. So, you yeah. know, if, if we were embroiled in a double overtime, I loved it. There were a couple guys, uh, Lipscomb guys on, on the team with you too, right? Harry Chang and yeah. Mike Miller. Harry Chang, Mike Miller, Aaron Mankin. Um, Aaron Mankin. Yeah. And Mike Miller, I mean, talk about an overachiever. That guy was unreal. He's a great um, basketball player. You know, he'd be on the stats board. He'd be on the stats boards. You know, he led the state in rebounds for, you know, three months out of the season, one year. And, you know, he's 6'2", maybe, playing center. And and really, I, I don't know how he did it, but he would just always come down with a ball glass. He was just one of those dudes. Mm. And then he had this little shot. You know, he could put it back up and in, and there'd be a, you know, a 6'8", 6'9", dude on him, and they just couldn't block it, and he'd score. And so he'd start – you know, he was he was all state, all mid state for sure, um, in a lot of categories himself. Hmm. Man, that's that's yeah. awesome. I didn't know that. And so just just so I uh got this right, in eighth grade you set the school scoring record and that was for all through high school, or is that just a middle school? Uh, was, yeah, that was just middle school, yeah. So okay, I set okay. the junior high record for points, yep, in a season. And then collectively we went on, like I said, to set the school records for wins in a season as a team throughout high school. So baseball is really where state championship. Yeah. And baseball was where, uh, where you really, you know, it ended up like kind of moving to the next level. So, um, I guess kind of where, when were you developing, you know, kind of like your arm cause you, you're a pitcher and, uh, you know, I, I've got some, I got some stats on that, but, um, you know, t- talk about that. Sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, from, well, not even unfortunately. So kind of the way that it went for me, um, was I, I played baseball competitively and I was left-handed from a very young age. You know, I, I knew that I, I could play a little bit. I was always on the all-star team or whatever, and played pretty much year round. And I was playing against, you know, David Price is from Murfreesboro. Um, a couple other guys from Tullahoma that you, you might not know the name of as much as him, but from a young age, you know, I, I was constantly playing against these dudes and there's two or three of them that, you know, played against all the way up and through college. Um, but it, it started, I'd say about sophomore year. Um, I just started noticing at the games, you know, guys were starting to show up with, with radar guns um, unannounced and they just sit behind the fence. They'd watch an inning or two or they'd leave. And then I'd get some, you know, kind of bulk letter in the mail telling me about some university and it'd have some little letter in it, you know, talking about the baseball program or whatever. And then once I became a junior, um, that's when I really started getting courted a little bit more heavily. And 
at that point, um, MTSU was a mainstay. Lipscomb was definitely in the hunt there. And then my, my other two main conversations were with Tennessee and Vanderbilt. I really was pretty, my mind was made up. I wasn't going to leave the state. It was just kind of a question of uh, what I wanted to do in terms of where I wanted to try to fall, you know, pre- predict to be on a depth chart, how much I wanted to play versus how big a school I wanted to go to. Um, and so by senior year, you know, you're, you're pitching and you're kind of trying to weigh those options and decide, you know, what's going to be right for you. And obviously I ended up at Lipscomb. Yeah. What, what was the thing that kind of swung the, the needle there for you to choose Lipscomb? Was it campus visit? Was it coach Ryman? Um, you know, or any of the coaches, you know, what was it? Yeah. Ryman, well, Ryman's always been a positive guy. I've had a lot of good experiences with him. He was, uh, he was pretty early on in his, his tenure there when I first came onto the scene. Um, it was more about, um, you know, kind of for any perspective athlete who's good enough to play college, you really, you know, you're a little bit too young to fully understand some of these questions, but you got to decide, you know, am I looking to be a preferred walk-on at a big school or is it more important to me to really have a shot uh, to get in the mix and play on this team? And you also have to decide, you know, if you're going to try to play Division One baseball or if it's a better fit for you to go into a Division Two or an NAIA and, uh, you know, face maybe a little bit different competition but get a little bit more opportunity. Um, and so kind of coming into that decision, I had preferred walk-on options for UT. Um, I had the same offer from Vanderbilt and a little bit of an offer from MTSU. Um, and I'd kind of taken the same visits with MTSU and Lipscomb when I was considering baseball, you know, all the, the tours and the dinners and all those things. And it, it just felt to me um, like at Lipscomb, the coaches were a little bit more interested. I really liked the vibe. I liked the idea of, of going to school in Nashville. It was enough of a separation from home. And they were playing Division One baseball, um, which was new for them at the time. And I felt like it was a good fit. And it checked all my boxes. Um, so, yeah, when I was a senior, I, I got to announce on signing day and commit. And uh, it was a good time, man. It was a good time in life. Yeah, Lipscomb's got a pretty good history of baseball, like a good baseball program, you know, especially the NAIA days. And I think you were there really when they kind of turned the corner as being, a, you know, a, 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 a for, I don't want to say a force to be reckoned with, but like they've won some big NCAA games. I, like they just beat a big team a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember who, who that was, but um, you know, you were in, you were laying the groundwork with those teams. Certainly there were guys that went to the MLB that you played with. Oh yeah. Um, but did you oh, yeah. know about some of the rich baseball history at Lipscomb before you got there? Had you been to games or anything as a kid? Sure. Yeah. I'd never been to a game as as a kid, um, I knew about it just from the recruiting trips and, and kind of being told. It was enough kind of outside of my bubble or circuit um, at the time to really be aware of kind of the prestige within AI until I was told. Um, and then obviously it, it really started to make sense. I think when I got there, um, we had just been a Division One program for, I think, one or two years outside of the probationary period um, where you couldn't participate in the postseason events when you transitioned. When Fletcher was the head baseball coach my freshman year and then my sophomore year, Jeff Forehand uh, took that job over. And so it was definitely developing, you know, during that time. I think when I was a sophomore is when Rex Brothers showed up. Um, and I would played basketball against Rex since I was a kid. Um, and he, you know, got a lot of stories playing him against like him when he was at community high school and 
And uh, he was always just a, a tough, scrappy competitor, but he, he didn't really blow up, you know, and get big and strong until right around in those years. So watching him and Caleb Joseph, Josh Smith, you know, watching those guys really develop um, really was something special. man. And then obviously we beat Vanderbilt when they were number one in, in the country and uh, we won the, the conference tournament. Yep. Got to play in the NCAA tournament, won a couple ball games. All that was brand new. Um, and it was just very exciting to be a part of, period. Yeah, David Price was on that Vanderbilt team. He was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Josh, yeah. and like Rex, said, and Caleb, they all went. Did they all go to the to the pros? Yes. Yeah. And Rex is still up. Caleb's still up as well, I believe. And and Josh is definitely in and out all the time. Um, you know, I haven't I haven't seen a stat on him in a minute, but that doesn't mean nothing. I haven't kept too close of an eye but those boys have have definitely made it work um before we get out of uh too far out of high school real quick i just did want to mention that you know your senior year at mtcs um you you were on first team all area i'm not sure what that means but i'd love for you to tell me and then first team all district i think i know what that means um and uh you were the daily news mvp so is the daily news like a murfreesboro publication yeah, that's that's the newspaper in Murfreesboro, okay. um, the Daily News Journal. They did an awards banquet every year, and um, yeah, and so Wait, were you kind David of already Price knowing going. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was just gonna ask. Did you know, kind of going yeah. into your senior year, like, yeah, I'm, you know, probably gonna be on these te- these these award teams. Um, I didn't think about it like that, Glass. Honestly, I was super hungry, man. Um. I had some very specific goals in mind, um, particularly with the number of wins. And I was very much aware that I was kind of competing to where I was going to land at the next level. Um, By that point, you know, by the time I'm a senior, I knew I was going to play college baseball, but I knew I really needed to go out and compete and perform um, to get there. And so I didn't, I I tried not to focus on accolades at all. I, you know, I'd go to those dinners and I was super happy about it, but then I would just put them on the wall and and actively kind of, you know, not think about it too much because I knew we had work left to do. I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. So so just super humbling to receive it, and I'm sure you know those were those were well, some hot mountaintop moments when 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 you got named you know MVP and all that stuff. Well, yeah, and it, and you know it's it was interesting because as a kid, I mean, I grew up playing baseball against David Price. Not to continue to use that name, but if there's one guy, you know, in my life that I got to, from an outside perspective, kind of watch it develop, I can tell you, I mean, when I was 11 years old, um, I remember my coach, he, would, he, he looked across at us and he said, you know, this guy that's pitching against you tonight, there's no doubt in my mind, you're going to see him on TV playing Major League Baseball here in a 15 years. And you're going to want to ask yourself what you did on this night. You know, we're 11 years old. <laughs> then how special that kid was because he was six two six three already you know he's touching mid to high 80s i mean he was a freak since he was young and so playing against him watching him develop that was always kind of my uh, you know what do you what do you say the standard right like it was huge because we were the same age you know he uh, we shared the strikeouts in a game record for a short minute before he blew it away. Um, most wins in a season. Like those were the things I was trying to compete for. And he was always edging me. And so it was a little difficult to, you know, feel super awesome about it. But at the same time, 
so many times I'd sit back and be like, that guy is, you know, he's a freak. And he absolutely is to this day. He's won World Series and all those things. But I remember sitting at that banquet and he won all the baseball specific awards and the MVP just kind of took into account, you know, some of the ac- academics and leadership and the multi-sports and blah, blah. Um, and so it, it definitely was a cool moment, man. Um, not to understate it. It was, it was a good time in life. It was just a little bit ago. <laughs> right, right. Did you, um, first of all, that speech from your coach is awesome. That's like, that, yeah, that, that needs to be in some kind of like a Disney, Disney kid movie or something. That's it. Uh, um, did, uh, <laughs> did you, did you hit off him? I mean, was it, I'm yeah. sure you did. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm happy to fully disclose. So I got super stoked on that, right? That just revved me right up. So I, I went, I was the leadoff batter that game. First pitch swung. I was swinging right-handed at the time, though I'm left-handed. And so was David Price. And so first pitch, got a base hit, was super high on the hog. You know, I'm like, man, I just roped one down the third baseline off David Price. I'm going to get to remember that for the rest of my life, just like Coach said. And so that inning concludes. I think he strikes the next three guys out in a row because, well, he's David Price. And then he's the leadoff batter for their team. And I'm pitching. My first pitch, I let it go. He hits it out of the park. So <laughs> that victory was short-lived. That's so awesome. I still have mixed emotions about, you know, that speech and the fallout from, from that game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, going back to LU, um, and I'm just going off of their website, um, which, you know, at this point, I've been out of school for a little bit, and, you know, who knows, like, how much archives there, but, uh, it looks like you pitched in some pretty big games, right? Kansas, Vandy, Austin P. Um, as far as like actual stat stuff, it's really hard for me to find. So I just wondered if there were like some highlights or, you know, some, some specific memories that you have that you kind of go like, yeah, well, look back on my career. Like these are the things I'm proud of. Sure. Um, I mean, there was, there was a couple of times, I think for me, the, the main highlight that I had, because, you know, Glass, I kind of leveled out. Um, once I got to the college level, I was a really good and really effective high school pitcher. I did some pretty good, good things at the college level. But the base, you know, every once you get to that point, everybody else is just as good as you are. Um, if not, you know, better. That's just kind of how that works. And so I, I went from, you know, I, I definitely started settling into more of a role player. Um, as opposed to one of the kind of the main dudes, but I was always proud of myself for after my freshman year. I mean, I put in a ton of work, um, over those next two years, actually, uh, trying to gain some speed, become more competitive, um, and really be able to contribute. And then I was a big team guy, man. I loved those dudes and uh, I always tried to do whatever I could to, to make the team better, um, and to try to, to be a part of it in that way. And I know you made a note in here about the, do you want to throw 95 videos? And <laughs> honestly, some of that, you know, started coming into play because that's, those were things I could do on the periphery to kind of keep the morale high. Um, but I, you Why know, does Jerry it, love that? Sorry what, what, what was that? So we had a pitching coach who he actually, he's doing great now too. He's working with a lot of MLB pros and other guys. His name was Lance Wheeler and he had a very, uh, novel at the time for sure approach wait, to wait, pitching Lance and Wheeler? some of the mechanics that were Lance Wheeler. So we had two Lance Wheelers at Lipscomb. I guess I didn't, I didn't know there was another one. His name was L A N T Z Lance and he was wow. the pitching coach. Yeah. There was another the whole guy time that Lance I was Wheeler. there. Okay. <laughs> 
And so he was all about speed training. He was all about using, you know, these weighted baseballs and medicine balls and, um, and tension bands at the time to get your miles per hour up. And so we had all these crazy drills that we were doing, you know, outside the box stuff that none of us had ever seen. And uh, he was always talking about, you know, throwing smoke and lasers. And uh, if you want to touch 95, these are the things that you need to do. And so he, he definitely had a great sense of humor and could laugh at himself. And so, you know, a lot of times we'd always banter with him about that and then got the opportunity to, you know, one night to just make a video kind of parroting the situation. And um, another teammate ended up cutting it into <laughs> cutting it into a movie. And uh, we took a bus to Florida to play some series. And about halfway down, I mean, they popped that tape in and it started playing all over the TVs on the buses. And uh, I didn't know it was going to be played like that, but it ended up being pretty funny. So it worked out. That's funny. There's a lot of characters on the team, baseball team. Um, Jerry Young, definitely a character. I think you're a character. There was this other guy um, I remember, and I don't know if he finished at Lipscomb, but he was from Florida. I want to say his name was Josh. And he wore like, you know, straight up like Wranglers and, uh, you know, cowboy boots. And Josh Josh Spicer. Yeah. What happened to that guy? Josh Spicer. I want to say, well, he worked in law enforcement back in Florida. He's doing real well. Um, I believe he's married. I want to say he's either a trooper or a sheriff and uh, still wearing the boots, still wearing the Wranglers. His style has been him from day one since I met him. It's true to himself. He is. Always has been. He knew. Head of his time. Ahead of his time. Oh, man. That's awesome. Um, well, you know, I wrote in here too, like, I, I kind of feel bad since we lived together for two years. Uh, we were roommates for two years, and everybody, we lived in High Rise, and we lived on the, the fame, infamous Tyne House that we had with me, you, Clay McLean, Travis Littleton, and Hunter Batson. Um, that, was a, that was a good year. Um, but I don't think I ever came to a game, and uh, I'm really sorry about that. I'm telling you now, I'm sorry, as, as a friend. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, a lot of people went to basketball games, um, but I don't think a lot of people went to the other sports that much. And, uh, you know, what do you think that's like a Lipscomb-specific thing, or do you think it's just kind of people don't go to college baseball games very much, or, or there are schools where people do? Yeah, I mean, um, for us, it was definitely hot and cold. Um, when we started getting a little bit better, the numbers definitely increased where we would you know, we got to where we were getting a thousand people at a game. We set the attendance record when we beat Vanderbilt when they were number one in the nation. We had over, I want to say, close to three thousand people um, at Dugan Field because that was a home game uh, for that game. And those are obviously awesome experiences. And we go on the road. Um, you know, the LSU's and the. I remember playing Fresno State. I mean, that that was a straight up coliseum. Um, but or the Georgia Techs. I mean, you you get in those situations where you get around a lot of people, and so to come home and play for a few less was always kind of interesting, but I think it, it really boils down to, you know, basketball's pretty intense. It's always winter time. It's indoor, it's nighttime. It's very social. You know, the baseball games were much more laid back activity. Um, you know, people hanging out, getting some sun, whatever it may be. So I think it just kind of appealed to some different people. Um, but yeah, I, I can't say that I know enough, particularly, in today's time to kind of comment about the attendance figures and how they may be different. But as we know, there was a firm tradition um, with kind of attending and supporting Lipscomb basketball and still is to this day. 
And it was pretty exciting stuff, man. I can't blame them at all. But I definitely didn't feel unsupported by any means. I appreciate you, you know, like I said, saying what you said about not showing. But hey, man, I get it. You had your experiences to have too. Well, man, you know, I've been just harboring that for all these years and kind of, you know, I buried it deep and I feel better now <laughs> to to be able to, you, you know, that you forgive me. So, um, there you go, of course. yeah, and I feel like it's a lot of college baseball games too. Like they could be like and softball, right? It'd be like middle of the day, right? Like get, get out of your two o'clock class. It might be a baseball game going on. So, um, yeah. You know, the timing's definitely different than basketball in terms of your Yeah, day. usually there's a Tuesday, Wednesday, early in the afternoon. Sometimes they're later in the evening. And then you got the weekend series. And so Friday's usually a night game. Saturday, usually a night game. Um, sometimes it's in the afternoon. And then Sunday is an afternoon game for sure. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, different schedules. And also just a ton of baseball games, you know. With basketball, they're kind of limited series events. We, we're playing this team. We've got, you know, 12 home games or whatever the case may be, 14, I, I don't know. But with baseball, you know, it'd be a much larger number because um, mm-hmm. we just ended up playing more games in a season. Um, Just want real quick talk inside baseball a little bit. Um, so, you know, not everybody goes the the college baseball route. Like if you're a good prospect in high school, um, there's, a, there's kind of a lot of different ways you can go. Um, some people go straight into the minor league farm system um, for the major league teams. So, um, what, what is that world, you know, like when you're coming up in high school, like, you know, in training in baseball and kind of going, Hey, after high school's over, like, here's some different routes I can go, you know, w- w- were you attracted to any of those routes or you're like, I'm definitely going to college. Yeah. I think for the most part, a new college was going to be my fit. Um, just because the guys that at least at that time, you know, the, the moods kind of shifted a little bit in terms of what these teams on the pro level are looking to do with, by picking up an 18 year old. Um, they, they kind of are set up more with that European mentality these days of we're going to, you know, we're just going to pick them up young and develop them into the player as opposed to kind of removing that responsibility from us and giving it to a college to do. Um, so there were those guys that, you know, they were going to get taken in the first three rounds or whatever. And so for them, you know, the, the decision is a lot more, cut and dry as to what needs to happen next. They're going to get drafted. Go ahead and make the money. Um, for people that still need to develop or want to develop, even you look at the, a guy like David Price, um, you know, he chose college. He definitely, he got drafted. He decided not to go because he knew that he was going to continue to get better with the number one pitching coach in the nation. And then his stock would rise. So whenever he did sign, the bonus was going to be, you know, exponentially larger than it would be out of high school, all those things to consider. For me, um, though I did entertain some light conversations with professional scouts that came, uh, the White Sox and the Braves specifically, um, came and checked me out, I I definitely fell more into that developmental category where this dude's left-handed, he's got some really nasty off-speed stuff, a lot of potential, um, but we got to tighten up a few things before he's going to be ready to talk about competing at the pro level. Um, so for me, it was an easier decision to kind of sink into that college route. Um, I wasn't very tempted or even offered much to, to move on in the pros, but you know, for some guys, like I said, that's, that's certainly a decision. You have to figure out if, if you're ready to skip that part of your life and just go straight into training for this one thing and having a job out of high school, basically, or if you want to do a little bit of both first, not really a bad route. It's just about picking what's right for the individual. Any attraction that you had to post-college, like jumping into a minor league situation? I mean, it's kind of a tough 
that's a kind of a tough life, right? You can kind of bounce around in that world for a while if you choose that. It is. And, you know, if, if you can get in there um, and you can go the independent ball routes and the, for me, you know, when I was getting towards the end of my career, um, I started looking up a little bit more glass and uh, you forgive me. I, I haven't done many of these kind of long winded um, podcast style talks where I kind of sounded out. Um, it's good. Particularly We're just going on the around, <laughs> around baseball here. But yeah, for me, it was, you know, by the time I, I started getting into my junior year of college, I had redshirted a year. I tore a bunch of stuff in my right ankle. I had to sit out a year. Um, so for me, that was really year four. I kind of, I kind of could feel that maybe baseball wasn't going to be, you know, my next 10 years. And so I started asking a question that up until that point, I really hadn't asked, which is like, what do I do next? What am I going to do? Um, what am I doing with my life? What do I want to achieve? What do I want to experience? Because um, up until that point, that was a very cut and dry answer. It was, I, I went to school, I made enough grades, you know, which, to go to college and support these athletics. And then it became more focused to baseball. And once it started ending, that was kind of the first time I've experienced like, okay, um, what are we going to do next? I don't know. Yeah. And uh, obviously for me, it, you know, ended up kind of graduating um, with an extra semester and then moving to Alaska and trying to experience some things post-college. Um, but yeah, it, there was definitely a transition period where, you know, my dad was calling me and saying that I, I got an offer from this scout or that scout to go throw. Um, and, you know, I'd think about it. And um, I went with Jerry actually to, to talk about that guy. We took a trip to Mississippi to a tryout. Um, I think to Biloxi, we just drove one night for a weekend. And, um, you know, so you chase it for a second. But I think when I knew, when I was done, I knew I was done. Um, I threw my last pitch against Austin P. Um, I think I kind of knew it was my last pitch. You know, I, I didn't really know how to ex- describe it or explain it. I think there were still a few games left, but I remember, I remember throwing it, um, getting that final out, or throwing a fastball, and being a little dinker handcuff um, to the second baseman. He threw it to first, and I remember walking and realizing, you know, this is the last time I'm going to step across this line. And I looked up, and my dad was sitting there, and he had always been my biggest supporter for ball. And um, I remember tipping my hat to him and him nodding and then just realizing that's it, stepping over that line and, you know, knowing we're not going back in at this level. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good story, man. That's that's really cool to hear. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so just real quick, you know, let's just talk a few things about Lipscomb before we head into music. Um, so, you know, I think when you're on an athletic team, um, you, your introduction to school and, and what your life at school is going to be like, is very different from like mine where, you know, I was doing, going to all the quest team activities and, you know, meeting a bunch of people from everywhere. And I know you, you did a awesome job, man, of like all the people I can think of, like you and Miriam McAllister and some other people, like just, it wasn't just you had your athletic friends, like you had friends everywhere on campus. And, um, you know, I can remember the people you roomed with like your first year, it wasn't a baseball room. I think you roomed with like who Harry and who else was in that suite with you in high rise. Um, there was, I think there was, was a brief, another guy, but there was, it ended up just with sharing with one other person named Antonio. Um, forgive me. I don't remember his last name. Yeah. I Thompson. Actually. And Antonio Thompson, he, 
you know, Harry, we obviously played basketball together and we're friends in high school, um, going to school together. It just kind of made sense. And, and I was pretty adamant from early on. I, I wanted a diverse experience. I didn't want it to be all channeled into baseball as much as I wanted it. Enjoy it. I knew it was going to be so much of my life. I made it a point to try to make other friends, man, because I, I just wanted that to be part of my college life. Well, my point about that, you know, first, you know, few weeks of school or month of school when I was saying I'm, I was going to all the quest events and doing all that stuff. I mean, you're practicing like you guys probably are weightlifting. You're doing team stuff. I mean, you're probably doing a lot of those activities, which is when you're an athlete at college, you're committed to those things. So do you remember doing any of those like other types of campus events or was it pretty much like, Hey, I'm, I've got to go to baseball stuff. All day. <laughs> it was, it was back and forth. And unfortunately during kind of right around those times is when we're doing the two a day conditionings. And so, um, you know, getting back into school, getting back into the swing, that's one of the first things that you do. And uh, I just remember kind of going, you know, you do that early morning, you know, run till you can't run no more. And then you take a shower and, and there would be some, you know, team building exercise or, or uh, some topic being discussed in Shamblin or something or a, a breakout session and, and uh, just trying to be involved as much as you could, but you're just so dog tired and, uh, and just kind of trying to not get too burnt out with everything new at once. Yeah. Y'all are like carrying around a gallon of water with you all around campus and oh, stuff. Dude. It was, yeah, spiked with Pedialyte because, yeah. you know, I mean, you you had yeah. to live off of it. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> that 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 conditioning, I'll tell you what, man, I mean, I, I can still remember times where you just feel like you could run for two hours straight. And the only thing that would give out was your muscles, not your lungs. Right. But looking back, like the amount of water you have to drink and mm-hmm. like the time you need to sleep to like make that a thing, dude, it's it's pretty crazy. It really is. Well, um, you know, I'm going to just do this. This is, this is a PG thing I'm about to say. Okay. So don't worry, okay. but like, you know, you, you're a ladies man. Um, you know, a lot of girls <laughs> liked you. Um, and, uh, you know, I think when we did that show together in Nashville, like all these girls came out of the woodwork and I, I think that was for you, man. I think they, they wanted to see Jordan sing again. Um, but, uh, you know, just kind of talking about the first, you know, couple months of school where it kind of has this church camp vibe. Did you have any, you know, crushes early on? It could be a quest team crush. It could be an athlete crush. Any, any that you feel okay sharing about, or you just want me to move on from that? <laughs> and I came into, uh, I came into college with a girlfriend from mm-hmm. high school. And so for those first couple of months or whatever, I had enough on my plate. Um, was trying to stay focused with the ball, but I definitely met some pretty friends. And um, yeah, <laughs> once y'all broke really up, know. once once y'all broke up, the 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 floodgates well, opened, dude. I mean, they were just lined that's up. <laughs> that's all we're gonna say. I mean, yeah, hard to hard to remember those days specifically, but yeah, I met a lot of nice people for sure. <laughs> Uh, I threw you off with that one. That wasn't on the outline. Um, so yeah. And you majored in business, right? Management marketing. That's it, man. Yeah. Double major in those two. Mm -hmm. And, uh, any, you know, notable professors or classes or anything like that? Oh yeah. 
Wilson Duke, um, top of the top of my head, Leanne Smith. Um, those two ladies in the business department were just cornerstones in my experience and really sweet. Um, cared about me as a person. I think I ended up giving ukulele lessons to Miss Duke's daughter um, there for a little while when she was real young. And and nice. uh, Miss Smith was just always had her door open to kind of help answer some questions, you know, that weren't even necessarily school related. It could be about life. And I always appreciated that extra effort and that extra care. Um, yeah. And then there's a lot more beyond that. And, and forgive me for not remembering all of the names. Um, That's okay. But uh, Randy, Randy Steger, I want to say. Yeah. The dude wore his Crocs all the time. I think he wore his Crocs. He was the, yeah, he was a business yeah. guy. He loved, you know, he had a lot of good, um, a lot of good material about Cracker Barrel and how it was successful. I remember discussing that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, <laughs> those were, there, there was some good staff there. I'm sure there's still this. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, once I decided yeah. I was going to be a business major and it kind of made sense, it was a little bit more broad. Um, some of those people really kind of helped to keep me on track and keep me steered till I got done. Um, talking music in college, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you always sang and, um, you know, what, I guess, when did you pick up the guitar yourself? I was probably about, so the first time I picked up a guitar was like 10 or 11. Um, my neighbor had one in his basement. He said it was his sister's. He was a kid too. Mm -hmm. And I took it home and just basically sounded out a three part harmony like we had been doing in church, but with the strings, turns out you call those chords. Um, right. <laughs> and just kind of fleshed out, you know, enough of those to, to jam a little bit. And then it was just kind of something I'd do every now and then I didn't have a guitar or anything mm. until, um, my friend, Joey Fletcher, mm. um, who still plays quite a bit in the Nashville scene. Um, pretty deep actually. He, he was, you know, around 13, 14, he showed up in my life and he was really playing. Um, and so He's a that's beast. when I, I started learning He's a little a bit more. He's a beast. Yeah. yeah. And so he's, he's been a beast. He's always yeah. kind of been just a head. I don't know how else to put it. Um, so yeah, just chasing him and, and learning a little bit. And then I got to college and um, got in that first band. I just went off and I played summer baseball in Morganton, North Carolina one summer. And I was doing a lot of work for baseball. I mean, I was doing the two a day workouts on top of, you know, I had a, I was in the start and rotation and had a lot of responsibilities with that team but also was like, I need to do something for myself. Like what sounds fun? I was like, man, music might be cool. I think I want to go to an open mic. And so I found one, I forget the name. And I remember going and playing and being so nervous. Um, but finishing that summer season and coming back to Lipscomb and being like, I want to be in a band. Like that's yeah. something I want to do. And so I told Caleb, who was our catcher at the time that and he's like, I want to be in a band. Uh, <laughs> that's something I want to do. And my friend Trent plays. Um, so what do you think? Like maybe we could just jam. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good, but we don't have a bass player. And uh, Jerry was like, I, I don't know how to play nothing, man, but I'd love to be a part. So he bought a bass, <laughs> and uh, that's the first band that I was in. We taught him how to play two notes. We're like, just strum one of those two, dude, and uh, stay there. We'll take care of the rest. And that's kind of how that started. And Caleb played drums, right? Caleb played drums, and yeah. he's a pretty good drummer um, to this day. I think his most – one of his most – I mean, he's had some amazing baseball accolades, but – I saw last year he had a viral video going when he was with the Blue Jays. Uh, I think he was at their training camp and he had the buckets lined up and he was playing drums with, I don't know if it was tees or what, um, something baseball related. And he had a, a Rush song playing. And I was like, he's been doing that same stuff 
since I met him when I was 19 or whatever. Like he's just the same dude. I love it. That's awesome. And the band was called Cold Steel, right? (laughs) Yes, it was. Yes. Let's consider it seriously. Yes. Yes. S-T-E-A-L. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, really tight play on words there, Glass. Really, (laughs) you know, just a monumental band name, obviously ready to take over the globe from the (laughs) get-go. Did y'all play? Okay, so honestly, Trent Bailey is a serious guitar player, by the way. I mean, he's he's a real guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. And then, to be totally honest, too, you have become a really great guitar player. Like, when I listen to your stuff these days, I'm just... I mean, even even your first album, but like you just keep evolving. I feel like as a guitar player, and your music evolves with you. But um, just wanted to mention that 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 you've um, you've become quite the player yourself. And, and I think anybody that knows music, like Landon and I, have talked about that. I'm sure Joey would say it as well. Um, but well, thank uh, you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, did you did Cold Steel do any gigs? Like, didn't y'all do a gig at Lipscomb for like a soccer game or something? We did a bunch. Yeah, we did. Uh, our first gig was on top of the baseball dugout. Um, after a game, went to the locker room, changed out of the uniform, put on the, you know, the tight black shirt and the hair gel and the jeans, went out <laughs> and nice. rocked. And then uh, we ended up doing a, a couple of, oh, what's the theater um, in the, you know, the, the building with the cafeteria? There's something the Shamblin. There. Is it Shamblin? Yeah, that's yeah, Shamblin. So we did a couple of. We we started. I, I forget who had the end, but um, we played a couple of campus shows there. Uh, we ended up playing one at what? Sorry, I'm blanking. I'll say it. What's the big auditorium, Glass? Oh, uh, Collins Auditorium. Collins. Yeah, we we did did one in there, and then um, I think it was the two main ones that we did for school were basketball events, and so. We did one, I think it was during homecoming in the ox gym where all the food was that people could come through and grab on the buffet. They had a stage set up and like all these chairs and remember people hanging out and eating and we played the cold steel show Uh, and the coach was mad because we had to leave practice early. He was not cool with that um, to go get set up. (laughs) And then, and then we played a halftime at a basketball game as well. Um, I think we ended up playing a couple of volleyball games. I mean, we just kind of got in that rotation. And before you know it, you know, we had a, a three or five song cold steel gig, you know, once every two weeks or so there for a while. So That's it was pretty awesome. cool. It's kind of the first awesome. taste. The first taste of, of fame. Um, uh, I don't know about fame, but at least getting up there, you know. <laughs> well, uh, when you graduated college, you mentioned you you went to Alaska. And, um, you know, Man, I guess just like what drove you to move out, you know, all the way across the country uh, to a place that, you know, uh, is kind of an island unto the country. You know, it's way up there and it's really far away. And I feel like you you did some crazy jobs out there, like, you know, working on the fishing boats, like deadliest catch kind of thing. Um, what all did you do when you got out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of... Um, to start with just kind of the reasoning, I I lived at a, on a house that's still um, probably adjacent to campus on Belvedere Street. And uh, as I was kind of going back to concluding baseball, I remember just thinking like, what what do I want to do? And obviously the first inclination is to get an internship. And 
to kind of follow my major, which would have been marketing or management. And I didn't hate that idea by any means. I just kept feeling this pull, right or wrong, um, that if I was going to go experience something different, um, that I, I kind of needed to go ahead and make that decision. Because once I started getting into the groove of going a certain way, it probably might get a little bit harder to pull myself out. Um, and so I, I didn't know what it was going to be. And I, I couldn't figure it out. I had a friend that went to Lipscomb as well. Her name is Cami Coy. And she had gone to Uganda, Africa to kind of help run a orphanage over there. And she'd done it with a guy named Chris West. And uh, we were having a conversation one day about that very thing, about not knowing what I wanted to do next. And she mentioned to me um, that, you know, this guy was a manager at a zipline tour company. Um, and so what they do is it's in Alaska. And if you're on a cruise, you go up and you get off on an offshore shore excursion and you take a jet boat over to this island. And there we would be. And you would go through nine zip lines that are about anywhere from 87 to about 150 feet in the air. And you cruised about 40, 45 miles an hour and hit on the other side. And it was my job to like catch you. If you get stuck out in the middle, I got to go grab you and pull you in. So like ropes work and all this stuff. And I knew I knew nothing about it. Um, but as I kind of started to try to clarify and evaluate what I wanted, um, I wanted, I wanted to be tested in a way I'd never been. Um, my life up until that point had been pretty simple about one thing. It was about, you know, athletics and academics, make sure I get good enough grades to get through all the school and continue to pursue this one dream. Well, I, I, I needed to figure something else out. And for me, I felt like I needed to start in an environment where I didn't know anyone or anything and just learn for myself kind of how to adapt and uh, how to how to thrive in an environment that I know nothing about. And obviously, Alaska being as big and wild and poetic as it is, it, it drew on me. Um, I had a Jeep at the time. I, I, the idea of the drive through Canada, it seemed romantic. It just kind of all hit. And so I called, um, got that interview and committed. I went up there and for the next you know, a couple of years, I'll, I'll just cut it short, but had, had an interesting experience of, you know, teaching myself all these knots across the country and just knowing nothing, being completely unprepared. But, you know, I got a job in Alaska, I'm going to go. And then settling in, um, experiencing a place that, you know, people might visit for a couple of days. Um, but when you really get to know Alaska, it's its, its own thing, um, for sure. And then, and then kind of, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of all the jobs that I did up there, did some, some of the boat work for that company, drove to a Unimog, which is like a giant Mercedes Benz truck thing up and down the grade there. And then also led those tours. Um, I didn't do much fishing commercially, um, only ever went out on, you know, boats with friends or people that I knew, um, did some amazing fishing, but never for money. Um, so yeah. And then I think around the end of that first summer, I had kind of put the guitar down because coming out of college, we did the cold steel thing. Then I started playing country a little bit, going to the singer and songwriter rounds because, you know, my friends that played music, uh, mainly Thomas Red at the time, you know, that's kind of what they did. That was kind of the Nashville in. Um, but I kind of just reached a point where I knew, you know, even if I'm going to do this recreationally, that's not my bread and butter. I don't know what it is. I need to go find it. And Alaska kind of provided me a blank enough slate to be out of all of the all of the inundation that you don't realize you're in in, in the in the South and in Tennessee with country music and it's in the radio you know it's on the radio it's in the gas stations it's in the grocery it's at the movie theater you just don't even recognize it 
when you pull it all out, you start hearing indie, you start hearing, you know, all this different stuff. Um, I think for me, I just kind of came to a point where I, I felt confident enough to try to put it all together. And that's been a pursuit that you could argue that I'm still on to this day. Yeah. Well, um, and that's, that's where I want to get in. Um, so I'll break this up into like two episodes. So we'll do Harrison B as our second episode. Um, so my last question just for this session is when you moved out to Alaska, did you take grandma's old green chair with you? <laughs> grandma's chair didn't make these cut. It wouldn't fit in the back of the Jeep, dude. Wouldn't fit. Uh, uh, it wouldn't fit. So I'm trying to think what we took to Alaska. I had a soft top Jeep, which is not the ideal road trip vehicle for, you know, four and a half thousand miles. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had a stuffed dog I named Redford. That was my buddy. I had a, uh, I had taken the, I think I folded the back seat flat. I had a trunk. I had a travel Martin backpacker guitar and a hiking backpack stuffed full of just random stuff. And then I drove. A, a 44 uh, pistol for bear country across the country as far as I could and then had to get a gun store to mail it to myself. But that was it. It was a super bare bones run. I didn't take hardly anything. Well, Grandma's chair, for those of you listening, was uh, was a staple in <laughs> our dorm room. Dude, it was awesome. It was yep. like this old green leather recliner, <laughs> like a like a lime green um, recliner yeah. and uh, well, like an, a, a mature one. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely not like a neon thing you would see today. It was <laughs> definitely from the sixties or seventies. And um, it was in our dorm room. Cause we had high rise. We, we, it was myself, Landon, Clay McLean and you, and we had the beds in one room and then our other room was the living room. And so we had a mm-hmm. futon in there and a couple TVs and we had grandma's chair and you know, I, I don't really know that anybody was allowed to really sit in grandma's chair. It was kind of like your chair. And then when we moved out to the Tyne house, grandma's chair went with us as well to the living room where we had, dude, that furniture was awesome. We had like a orange, an orange velvet couch that my mom had found at some estate sale. So we had that plus the green leather chair that was your grandma's and then travis brought a couch too it was just so amazing oh man yeah and i mean i i remember specifically glass in the dorms i mean that chair wasn't off limits you know you were a, okay. a pretty prestigious on-campus basketballer in those days oh my and you'd okay. come back you'd, you'd come back and you'd hit a cool down session that chair you'd rip the shirt off <laughs> and just let that pleather you know kind of kind of get some chill into the skin <laughs> and leave a you know a pretty solid silhouette of where glass kind of unpacked all that effort just real oh, quick. I always appreciated that's, it. It's great. I knew you loved that chair. You were in my mind like an honorary tall fi guy. Like you hung out with us a lot, um, just by proxy of living with us. But uh it was uh, you know, when I look back at pictures and memories, you know, it's like a bunch of tall fi guys and and then you. And, uh, yep. so it was fun, but, uh, well, man, okay. you guys asked me to live out there and I really appreciated it. And you were my friends. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hate it. It's weird to even kind of mention it that way because I guess that's what being on a sports team kind of does to you at the time, but I didn't think about it any other way. You guys were just my friends and always, I, yeah. I, I didn't explore it. 
There's always you know? been this weird and, uh, thing too between seems like Toff High and the baseball team always kind of uh hangs out because that guy, um uh man, I can't think of his name right now, but I think he's the coach out at uh Brentwood Academy now. And uh mm-hmm. Chandler Gannick, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Like he he was kind of like a tall fi uh, he would have been you like four years before we were in school, um, like kind of in tall fi. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, he yeah. was in. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, there, are, there are photos of, of me with you guys out at that house. I mean, there were also instances where, you know, the pledges would come over and, you know, that's <laughs> happening. My bedroom is right there. Everything's happening six feet below me in the basement. <laughs> so I was definitely all on board. They probably thought they probably thought you were a member. They're probably like, ah, we didn't meet this guy yet. Um, yeah, real real quick about Alaska too, because just because in recent years I've become friends with Blair Knighton, um, pretty well, and she was out there in Alaska too, right? She absolutely was. She gave me some advice before I went. Yeah, that's cool. She'll she'll love that we're doing this interview. Yeah, no. Blair was solid. She gave me some pro tips. She did a lot on the glaciers um, with some of the dog sledding tours. And even I think at the time she had a retired one as her own personal pet. She did. Um, but she she knew the lay of the land up there. Yeah. Yeah. He was a ch- super chill dog. I mean, an older dog. Um, but yeah, I think he's she, still alive. she really loved it. No joke. Good for him. I, I mean, he seems like the type that it just forever. I think, yeah, she, so, I mean, she's me still happy. got that uh, husky and um, I can't remember his okay. name, but yeah, he's come to the bar. I've seen him, seen him a lot over the years. So, um, we'll do let's let's take a quick break. Um, and then we'll jump into some Harrison B here in a second. 